All right, guys. Good morning. Um, so today we're in uh, John 1, 29 to 34. That's my passage that I get to speak on this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles over there, uh, unless you have an app or whatever. Um, we also are going to have the scripture will be on the screen as well. Um, if you have one of the Bibles from the tables, it's on page 758. So how do we see Jesus? How do we grow in seeing him more and more each day? How is it that John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, and a lot of other people didn't? The Apostle John, who wrote the book we're reading from today, is very concerned that we, his readers, would see Jesus for who he is, and that we would believe in him and be saved. Many people saw Jesus while he was here on earth, and they didn't believe in him. People passed by him in the market or the synagogue and never actually saw him for who he is. Many even saw him teach and do miracles, and they didn't believe he was the Messiah. I believe we can learn to see Jesus by looking at how John the Baptist taught his students to see Jesus. So let's read uh, today's scripture together in John one twenty nine to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the, do- I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's Word. Uh, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, we thank you for John the Baptist, this uh, last of the prophets who declared Jesus was coming. We thank you for the Apostle John who wrote the passage that we're reading today. Uh, you're sovereign. You raised these men up so that we are gathered here today, 2,000 years later, might be encouraged and renewed. Open the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we can see Jesus as these men did. It's because of him that we pray this. Amen. In 1910, the surgeons Moreau and Le Prince wrote about their successful operation on an eight-year-old boy who had been blind since birth because of cataracts. Following the operation, they were anxious to discover how well the child could see. When the boy's eyes were healed, they removed the bandages. Waving a hand in front of the child's perfect, physically perfect eyes, they asked him what he saw. He replied weakly, I don't know. Don't you see it moving, they asked. I don't know was his only reply. The boy's eyes were clearly not following the slowly moving hand. What he saw was only a varying brightness in front of him. He was then allowed to touch the hand as it began to move, and he cried out in a voice of triumph, It's moving! He could feel it move, even as he said, He could hear it move, but he still needed laboriously to learn to see it move. Light and eyes were not enough to grant him sight. Passing through the now clear black pupil of the child's eye, that first light called forth no echoing image from within. The child's sight began as a hollow, silent, dark, and frightening kind of seeing. The light of day beckoned, but no light of mind replied within the boy's anxious open eyes. So that story is from a book called Catching the Light uh, by a professor at Amherst College uh, called Arthur Zajonk. And I think this story is a good metaphor 
for how we as Christians, we learn to see Jesus. Uh, Before God saves us, we're blind to him. We don't see Jesus because our eyes don't work. When God saves us, he gives us new eyes to see them with. But they're newborn eyes. Part of God's gracious plan is that we would learn over time to see him more and more. And as we see him more and more, we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We're less cynical and condemning and more joyful and kind. We grow in the security that we are living rightly, that we're on the right path. We grow a new gospel vision for everything around us, for our environment, for our finances, for our sexuality, for our culture, our neighbors, our enemies. And we want more and more people to see, see Jesus like we do. So how do we see Jesus more and more? As, as John the Baptist and the Apostle John show us, we see Jesus more and more in Scripture, in community, and in older men and women in the faith. We see Jesus more and more in Scripture. God has chosen to reveal himself through Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments. Many of you know from the story of God or from your own reading and study of the Bible that Scripture builds on itself. From the first part of Genesis on through the Old Testament and into the New, Scripture is declaring the coming of the Messiah and the restoration and redemption of our world. We can see Jesus more and more in Scripture because Jesus is on every page and because we have the power of the Spirit to see him there. John says in verse 29 of our passage today, The next day we saw Jesus, he, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John here is alluding to something from the Old Testament uh, that you guys might, might remember from the story of God or from your own reading. Does anybody know what he's alluding to here when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Passover. The Passover Lamb, that's just right. Um, and he's, he's, it's the Passover Lamb who Isaiah shows us points to Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 7, uh, Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The whole chapter of 53, in fact, is really plainly about Jesus. Like You don't really have to do too much digging there to see that that it's about Jesus. John, when he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is saying to his followers and those around him, Look, guys, it's, it's the one that Isaiah was talking about, right? It matches the description that Isaiah gave us. So we look at our, strict, our scripture expecting to encounter Jesus there, just like, I, just like John did with Isaiah. He's in there throughout on every page if you'll just look for him. Uh, Something helpful. Go back and listen to Zach's Easter sermon about um, talk about the road to Emmaus story, where Jesus, after his resurrection, sees these guys and they're walking along, and they were disciples of his, and they don't recognize him, and he teaches them how he was seen all the way through through the Old Testament. We see Jesus more and more in Scripture by the power of the Spirit. Uh, many people read read Scripture and don't see Jesus there. They even read the Scriptures that speak directly about Jesus, and they don't see him. It is only by the power of the Spirit that we see Jesus at all, even in Scripture. John the Baptist says in verses 32 and 33 of today's passage, I saw the Spirit descend on from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Though John the Baptist and his students and followers are seeing Jesus face to face in a way that, that we don't get to see him yet, it is, a, it is a spirit who confirms to them that this is the Son of God. 
So we too must have the Spirit with us to see Jesus rightly in Scripture. The Spirit opens our eyes to the supernatural realities that God reveals in His Word. Without the Spirit, we'll tend to look at Scripture with eyes that are blind to Jesus. We will approach Scripture either in a religious way or in an irreligious way. Religiously, we'll read expecting to get brownie points that will make God love us. Sort of a magical view of Scripture. Irreligiously, we won't read Scripture because we think it doesn't matter. And I imagine that I, like probably a lot of you, we're guilty of of both of those at times. And both of those are dead wrong. We read the Bible because it is where we encounter God himself. We read the Bible to take a drink from living water, to feast on the gospel of Jesus. In a letter to his brother-in-law, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said, you guys aren't familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a... Lutheran pastor um, about the time of World War II, and he um, actually collaborated in a plot to assassinate Hitler uh, that didn't work out, and ultimately he was killed. He's a martyr to the faith. So in this letter to his brother-in-law, he says, I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all our questions, and that we need to only ask repeatedly and a little humbly in order to receive this answer. One cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared to really inquire of it. Only thus will it reveal itself. Only if we expect from it the ultimate answer shall we receive it. That is because in the Bible God speaks to us. And one cannot simply think about God in one's own strength. One has to inquire of him. He's talking about having, asking the Spirit to reveal himself to you. Only if we seek him, he will answer us. Of course, it is also possible to read, that, read the Bible like any other book. There's nothing to be said against that. Only that that is not the method which will reveal the heart to us the heart of the Bible, but only the surface. Just as we do not grasp the words of someone we love by taking them to bits, but by simply receiving them, so that for days they go on lingering in our minds, simply because they are words of a person we love. And just as these words reveal more and more of the person who said them as we go on, like Mary pondering them in our heart, so it will be with the words of the Bible. Only if we will venture to enter into the words of the Bible, as though in them this God were speaking to us, who loves us and does not will to leave us along with our questions. Only so shall we learn to rejoice in the Bible. If it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected with my own nature. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature, and which is not at all congenial to me. This place is the cross of Christ, and whoever would find him must go to the foot of the cross, as the Sermon of the Mount commands. This is not according to our nature at all. It is entirely contrary to it. But this is the message of the Bible, not only in the New, but also in the Old Testament. And I would like to tell you now, quite personally, since I've learned to read the Bible in this way, it becomes every day more wonderful to me. I read it in the morning and the evening, often during during the day as well. And every day I consider a text which I have chosen for the whole week and try to sink deeply into it so as to really hear what it is saying. I know that without this, I could not live properly any longer. Now, don't you want that for your Bible reading time every day? Um, Bonhoeffer has just a really great view of it. To see Scripture in such a life-giving way, going to it as we go to get our breakfast. Um, So find some time to see Jesus this week in Scripture. Um, Don't worry about getting it right or wrong. 
Just invite his spirit to reveal Jesus to you as you, as you read. There are a couple, a couple helpful tools for seeing Jesus in scripture that I'll commend to you. Uh, the first, you've probably, if you've been around, you've heard us refer to it's CBR. It's City Bible Reading. It's our recommended prayer journaling uh, Bible reading plan. Uh, the plan guides you to invite the Spirit to help you see Jesus as you read and then helps you think and meditate on, on what God is saying to you through His Word. And then it helps you apply it and follow God's leading in your life with your gospel community. The second tool I'd recommend is uh, the Gospel Transformation Bible. It's pretty new. It came out, I think, in October. Um, I use it now almost every time I read the Bible. Um, you can get it, if you buy it, um, you know, in hard copy of it, you also get the digital copy, so it's really awesome. Um, I used it to pre- prepare today. It has some really helpful notes, and it helps you to see Jesus all the way throughout the Bible, even kind of in the obscure genealogies and stuff that sometimes we really have a hard time seeing Jesus in. Um, we see Jesus more and more in community. Why do we see Jesus in community? Because community compels us, community augments our vision, community encourages us. Let's suppose you're a follower of John the Baptist who decided to take the day off on the day that John declares Jesus to be the Messiah. John's like, hey, come on down. We're going to go down to the river. We're going to baptize some people. We're going to talk about the Messiah. I've got some honey and locusts to share with you. You know, he... You think, oh, you know what? There's this party down in Jericho. And it sounds really awesome. They're going to have a bunch of wineskins. They're going to have this DJ there. And it's going to be sweet. And I think, I think I'm going to take the day off today and go, go, go to that. Now, imagine you did that. That would be a huge miss, right? You, didn't, you, you missed Jesus. So for the sake of a, for, just for the sake of another party. Now, we're not against parties. We're for parties, actually. Um, But community, by which I mean gospel community, the community of saints, compels us to see Jesus. Just by hanging out in community with other believers, John's followers saw Jesus. So we too, when we hang out together, when we go go to the store together, when we're uh, eating together, when we mourn and celebrate together, when we do yard work together, uh, since we're together and abiding in Jesus, we see him. We're compelled to see him. Community also augments our vision. If John hadn't been there to point Jesus out to the group, say he went to the party in Jericho with you, everybody would have missed seeing Jesus. John was the one who saw it. God gave him a perspective that enabled him to see it. Now, we're each limited, limited and finite. We can only see Jesus in our own way. Jesus himself is unlimited and infinite. In fact, only God can see himself as he truly is in all of his glory because only God can see from all perspectives. John Frame calls this, God, says God is omniperspectival. Together in community, we can augment our own vision of Jesus by sharing what we see of him with one another. Community encourages us. There's no substitute for having a brother or sister in Christ say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when we're low and beat down by our troubles. This is why scripture so often speaks to the benefits of friendship and community. Paul says the, 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 to the Thessalonians and Romans to build one another up. The writer of Hebrews says not to neglect to meet together, but to encourage one another. I'm sure you've all experienced this. Can, do, do we have somebody here who has a, an example of how your community has encouraged you recently? They prayed for you, yeah. Pointed, yeah, pointed you back to Jesus in prayer. Anybody else? 
Yes, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, they served you like Jesus did. He saw Jesus in that. Patricia. They prayed more than once for you, yeah. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> yeah. William Wilberforce was a Christian politician and philanthropist in England in the late 18th and early 19th century. If you've seen the movie Amazing Grace based on his, on his life, which I'd recommend, um, you know that Wilberforce played a huge role in abolishing the slave trade in Great Britain. In his book Seven Men, Eric Metaxas says this about how Wilberforce accomplished all that he did. He was able to do all he did because of his reliance on a solid community of devout Christian brothers and sisters. Wilberforce was not what we today might call a lone ranger Christian, keeping his beliefs and prayers to himself. On the contrary, he thrived in the community of his fellow Christians and sought them out for strength and support and advice. The particular Christian community in which Wilberforce spent most of his time is famously known as the Clapham Circle because most of them lived in the London suburb of Clapham. Today, Clapham is a bustling part of the city of London, just four miles from Westminster Abbey. But more than 200 years ago, it was a gloriously idyllic village, far from the world of Parliament. Those who didn't share and were threatened by their religious views often derided members of the circle as the Clapham Saints or the Clapham Sect. Even after he was very famous, most of fashionable society still felt that Wilberforce and his colleagues' religious ideas about things like helping the poor and abolishing slavery were embarrassing. These detractors would end up on the wrong side of history, but at the time, their secular notions were the norm. It should be said that this Christian community known as the Clapham Circle did not happen by accident. On the contrary, it was the deliberate creation of Wilberforce's dear friend and relative, John Thornton, who was extremely wealthy and who chose to buy a huge home at Clapham with 12 bedrooms for the express purpose of luring his friends to live there and share in the community. Thornton then expanded the home and and bought others next door, hoping to get his brothers and sisters in Christ to be physically near each other so that they would benefit and be able to help each other in their various causes. Those who didn't live at Clapham were always welcome to come and stay for weeks or even months at a time. In the mornings, they would gather for breakfast and prayer, and whenever an important bill or issue was being worked on, they would pray together for strength and wisdom. Wilberforce would be the first to acknowledge that whatever he did, he did not do it alone. First of all, God was the one behind every battle and every victory. And second, the living community of Clapham believers was involved on all levels. Now, William Wilberforce was part of a gospel community. If he were around today and we had England on there, he'd be on that map. Okay? The Clapham Circle. And the community played an integral role in, change, in his changing the world. Now, most of us won't have the impact that Wilberforce and the Clapham Circle did. But we do all have the opportunity to share the burdens and joys of this life together, to encourage one another, and to see Jesus together. So I'd encourage you, if you're not in a gospel community, get in one. If you're kind of hanging around, but you're not so sure, and you you kind of come and go, try to fully give yourself over. Just try it out. Begin to do so. Skip the party in Jericho this weekend, or this Wednesday, or whatever. Hang out with your gospel community and see Jesus. Another way we see Jesus together in community is by doing what you're doing right now. Coming together on Sundays and and celebrating Jesus by listening to his word preached through fellowship and by singing songs and praise and exhortation. Make this a priority for you. Uh, Jonathan Dodson, a pastor at Soma Church, a Soma Church in Austin, it's called Austin City Life, had a great tweet this week about sermons. 
He said, sermons aren't info to individually download, but prophetic words to collectively steward. Now, that's not a knock on, on listening to sermon downloads. I, I'm sure a lot of you do that. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I do that too. He's just saying that a sermon is primarily for a community. That the truths, the seeing Jesus in a sermon is best done in community. And as Zach pointed out, there's questions in here that will guide you as you take this sermon today and the sermons going forward into your community and, and stewarding them together. Uh, we see Jesus more and more in older men and women in the faith. God has a plan for his church. And that plan includes lots of different people over lots and lots of years. John the Baptist points back to the older men than him, to the prophets and specifically to Isaiah. John the Baptist was an older man to his own students and followers who looked to to him to see Jesus. The Apostle John, who wrote this book, points us to John the Baptist as an older man in the faith. In fact, the whole book of John in some way is John pointing his reader to look at him as an older man in the faith. He gives us his own testimony and asks us to see Jesus as he does. Jesus said that he'll build his church. He's put before us men and women, brothers and sisters in the faith, who are there to help us see Jesus by showing us Jesus at work in their lives and by shepherding us toward Jesus. William Wilberforce had several men in his life that helped him to see Jesus. John Newton was one of them. Uh, Newton, you might know, wrote a hymn called Amazing Grace. It's probably the most famous English hymn, English language hymn in the world. Um, before John, John Newton became a Christian, he was a, um, a sailor, and uh, he sailed specifically at times in the participated in the slave trade in the Atlantic. Uh, he came to Jesus during a storm, and kind of over the course of a few years, as 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 God worked on his, on his heart, he gave up that life, uh, and and eventually he became um, a hymn writer. Um, he became a priest. He became a, fa- a f- actually very famous preacher. They used to have just tons of people go in here and preach. Uh, in Seven Men, Eric Metaxas tells us how John, John Newton helped William Wilberforce answer a crucial question for his life. After working his way up as a politician and becoming someone of great influence, influence in English politics, Wilberforce became a Christian, and he had an existential crisis. He went to visit his old family friend, John Newton, who he hadn't seen since he was a boy. Metaxas says this, Newton was surely overjoyed to welcome his old friend and to know that he had come back to his Christian faith. But Wilberforce was less joyful in the meeting. In fact, he was painfully burdened about what course his life should take. Whether he must leave politics was the particular rub. We often talk today about how dirty politics is, but it was certainly much worse in Wilberforce's day. But Newton, speaking perhaps prophetically, encouraged his young friend not to leave politics at all. Who knew his reasoning went, but that Wilberforce had been, had been prepared for such a time as this? Who knew, but that God would use him mightily in the world of politics, where he was needed more than ever? It's hard to know what's more amazing, that Newton said such things, or that Wilberforce accepted them. To remain as a serious Christian in that hostile, secular climate was a brave thing indeed. But accept them he did. And so Wilberforce vowed that he would take his faith into the world of politics and serve God there with his gifts. Now, Newton uh, was an older man in the faith for Wilberforce. He helped him see Jesus at work in his life and kept him on the path that ultimately led to the abolition of slavery in England. And incidentally, that had a lot to do with uh, the abolition of slavery here in the States. Where Wilberforce could not see Jesus, 
Newton could, probably because of the life that he himself had lived and the path that God had taken him on. So who is John the Baptist without Isaiah? Who is the Apostle John without John the Baptist? Who is William Wilberforce without John Newton? We must have men and women in our lives who are older and wiser in the faith, who turn our heads to see Jesus when we are looking the other way. God has graced us with pastors, gospel community leaders, faithful parents and grandparents, spouses, and mentors for this purpose. Seek out older men and women in the faith who will help you to see Jesus more and more. I think, too, that God has given us good books by or about older men and women in the faith to help us see Jesus as well. Find a biography on Bonhoeffer or Wilberforce or Billy Graham or St. Patrick or Elizabeth Elliot and see, and see Jesus in their lives. There's also some great accessible Christian writing out there, as a lot of you probably know. Um, Lots of good authors. There's also a lot of bad authors. So maybe uh, before you pick up a book at the Christian bookstore, see if you can get a recommendation. But um, those books point our eyes to Jesus. Jonathan Merritt in his book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagine, tells a story about seeing Jesus in an unexpected place. Three decades ago, Grant Henry was a God-fearing churchgoer who wanted nothing more than, than to please the Almighty. His parents took him to a local congregation three times a week where he'd fill his spiritual tank with Sunday school lessons, 20-minute sermons, and a handful of hymns. So zealous was his religious fervor that he pursued a master's in pastoral care from Princeton Theological Seminary. After working in the church for several several years, his passion waned and his faith faded. He soon found himself standing in a chasm between the church between the American church and the sort of faith he believed Jesus promoted. Rather than work at reforming the institution, he left Christianity altogether. Grant Henry shepherds a different kind of congregation today. He's the owner of Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. Nestled in Atlanta's Old Fourth Ward, a gentrifying district in the heart of, of the city, this bar has become a hipster hangout, a, a gathering place for the de-churched, a regular happy hour stop for the obscenely beautiful casts of Drop Dead Diva and Vampire Diaries. The website says the doors open for worship daily at 5 p.m., but you better come early if you want to snag a bar stool and partake of cheap beer and Hebrew National Chili Dogs. Now, the Ping Pong Emporium is a place that openly mocks our faith, openly mocks Jesus, openly mocks the church. They have a hot dog plate there that's called the Church Picnic. The menu boasts that Jesus loves our coleslaw, which is actually a pretty good endorsement, I would say. Um, The patrons sit in pews and watch ping pong matches drinking spiritual sangria. The pastor is a cross-dressing atheist. But Merritt says he sees Jesus there. He sees the people who hang out there and work there, who strike a pose of mockery and rail against our religion and act like they have it all together as desperate for the real Jesus. He sees them pointing out the ridiculousness of some of the aspects of the American church. And if we're honest, we might agree with them on some points. But really, they're asking someone to show them the real Jesus. As we see Jesus more and more in Scripture and in community and in our older men and women in the faith, we can see Jesus even in sin and brokenness, even in our own sin and brokenness, because we see sin and brokenness rightly. It's not not as a chance for us to condemn others or ourselves from some higher moral ground, not as something to shrug at or condone as if it doesn't matter, but as truly awful stuff that our beautiful Savior wants to redeem. 
So we're going to take a communion now. So let's, let's help one another see Jesus as we do, as the musicians, I think, are going to come up. Um, when we take communion today, grab a friend or a gospel community member or get in a group of, of your gospel community and point each other to Jesus. Confess to one another and rejoice together in his grace. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you not necessarily to take communion today, but instead partake of Jesus himself by choosing to follow, follow him starting today. Um, I or any of the other leaders here would be happy to talk to you if that's, if that's you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this time together here this morning. We thank you that you have, for many of us, opened our eyes uh, to see, see your son for he, who he is. We pray, Lord, that you would more and more guide us to, to, to see Jesus better, that you guide us um, to see Jesus in Scripture that you would guide us to see Jesus in community, that we would point one another to you, and that we would see Jesus in a, the, the men and women that you've put before us in the faith. Um, Lord, I, I pray that when we confront the darkness, as some of us are today, as many of us are today, that our cry would be, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.